And I've asked ministers to take a look at their budgets in discretionary spending. So that's things like office expenses, staff travel, office equipment, and make sure that they're looking for any kind of savings. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, thanks for listening to the podcast. Rob Shaw joining you this week. Mike Smith is off, but we got two great guests uh, joining me to walk us through another week in BC politics. It is uh, incredibly busy, and it's only going to get busier with the House coming back into session next week. So Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, thanks for joining me and uh, walking us through stuff. Yeah, I appreciate you waking me up so I could do this, uh, Rob. <laughs> uh, and uh, McLean Kay from the Orca, first time uh, podcast guest, but you have your own uh, broadcast kind of video podcast with the moving pictures. Tell us a bit about the Orca and uh, what you're doing there. Well, thank you. And uh, also thank you for waking uh, Vaughn up to do this podcast. Someone had to wake him up. <laughs> uh, the Orca, as of yesterday, we're one year old. Uh, we've one year of covering BC politics politics, uh, uh, business, and history. And yeah, you're right. We do have a couple podcasts. Uh, the much better one is with Jody Vance and George Affleck, but I do one with Jordan Bateman and myself, BC Poly Hot Stove. We've kind of got a Ron McLean and Don Cherry vibe. And you can find you online, right? Yes, the Orca BC, the OrcaBC.ca. TheOrca.ca, sorry, TheOrcaBC.ca is uh, our Twitter handle. You'd think I'd have our own site, right? <laughs> I'm sure you can Google it and find it. It's a, <laughs> it's a great read. It's a, it adds to the spectrum of what's going on, and you guys are quite funny in your... Uh, in your uh, video podcast uh, format there too. So encourage people to check it out. Thank you for coming and uh, joining us this week. We got a lot to get through. You heard off the top there, Finance Minister Carol James, who was saying that she has asked ministers to take a run at discretionary spending. Uh, and she mentioned office expenses, travel, equipment, that type of stuff. Uh, Vaughn, this fits into a larger theme that uh, we've been talking about in the podcast for weeks now, which is the razor-thin provincial budget, the pressures on the finance minister to keep spending down. Uh, what did were you a surprised to hear this, and b what did you what did you make of the way she described it? Well, James scaled down her economic growth forecasts for the year fairly dramatically at the beginning of September. So in February, the economy was going to grow 2.4%, and she's now lowered it down to 1.7%. She's also reduced the growth next year by one9 So that's a sign the economy's turning, things are softening, and she's now looking for discretionary spending. She said she's looking for about $300 million. That's the amount she took out of the contingency fund in early September to keep the budget in balance. So she's now trying to find that much discretionary spending, travel, office expenses, consultants to put the $300 million back. This happens. The BC economy turns. It can turn fairly quickly. Government revenues can disappear fairly quickly. Um, so this is often what, what we see, Rob. This is the first step. There could be more to come. Usually the next thing that happens is a little more severe, maybe a hiring freeze or something like that. It, the economy does turn quickly, but McLean, we heard in the last quarterly update and we've been hearing from the finance minister that things are risky out there. Um, is there... And yet, we also have one of the strongest economies in Canada. So how do you kind of put all that in perspective as to why government needs to be 
cutting back, do you think? Well, I mean, she's right. It is risky out there with things like uh, Donald Trump and uh, the instability of trade. Uh, every time China and the United States enter into another phase of their dispute, it affects us here in BC. Uh, and I mean, this is true under any government. I will say, though, that I think the NDP realize that they cannot, under any circumstances, go into the next election with a deficit. The narrative of them inheriting the largest surplus in provincial history, and then whatever the reasons may be, you can set them aside. Uh, they don't want to be defending taking that to a deficit in just four years. It is a good point. We always view the economy as the NDP's Achilles heel, right? This idea that, well, they can't go into deficit because then the liberals will attack them for being poor economic managers. We're in the middle of a federal election where the deficit doesn't matter a hoot. I mean, everyone's racking up a giant bill, but provincially, it's a it's kind of a no-go zone. Although, I, I don't know, Vaughn, like, what do you, if this trend continues, do you think we do end up in a deficit or do you think we end up in another round of, of program spending and the really kind of difficult spending cuts that, that impact services? Well, they've already increased the kind of spending that doesn't show up right away on the bottom line. And that is a fairly large number of capital projects. So the money there is borrowed and it's spread over a much longer period of time creates a lot of employment locally. So I think that's the kind of stimulus you're going to see from them. I think, uh, agree with McLean, I think they'll want to show that they made every effort to keep the books in balance and only as a last resort go into deficit. And the other thing to remember is that the numbers we got at the beginning of September covered only the first three year months of the fiscal year, May, June, sorry, April, May, and June. Um, a lot of the forest and mill closures that have happened have happened after that. So the impact of all that still hasn't worked its way through the economy and through the financial reports yet, although the finance ministry gets daily numbers and probably has a better sense, certainly, than we do. And that may be the other reason she's already taking aim at discretionary spending, because she knows there's still more bad budget news to come that hasn't been fully reported yet. Yeah, you get three interesting trend lines there that we don't know how bad they are. You have forestry, you have the housing sector, which is a massive property transfer tax revenue for government. We know it's cooling. How much is it going to cool? How bad is that going to be? And then you have ICBC, which continues yes. to be this massive risk. McLean, does any of those jump out for you in particular or, or even more difficult for government to deal with in any way? Well, yes, I would say ICBC. Uh, there is a lawsuit right now, uh, I believe from the trial lawyers, uh, and the, without getting into the details, uh, should the government lose, uh, apparently this would mean a $1 billion hit to the bottom line, uh, on the government's books. That's, uh, that's deficit territory right there. It's also worth pointing out we have not yet, uh, gotten a successful contract with the BCTF. And also, this was one of the, uh, I hate to use the word lucky, but in terms of a wildfire season and its effect on the provincial coffers, this was actually, 2019 was a comparatively lucky year. So, yeah. it, next Next year could well be worse. We've been talking on the podcast last week about why can't the government find the money to help the forestry workers in a year when the wildfire season wasn't bad, like you mentioned. And I guess one of the reasons is because they need all that contingency money on the books to help the budget stay balanced if the economy continues to worsen this year. They can't parcel out $60 million here, $50 million there. It's that it's that thin, Vaughn. So if they add in $300 million, and they get, say that the government gets $300 million back through these cuts... They end up with a 1.2-ish billion dollar cushion with a contingency and forecast allowance on a $50 billion budget. 
put that into perspective for us. Is that comfortable in any way for a finance minister? Well, it's better than being in deficit, but it is actually a fairly tight margin, especially since a couple of other things. They've already scaled down their economic growth figures for next year. I mean, we could be at the front end of a, a a slowing that lasts two or three years. Um, the other thing to remember is the New Democrats have only partly paid for some of their big promises. Uh, a lot of the housing promises are just getting underway. Child care is just getting underway. McLean mentioned the ICBC thing. There's not only the lawsuit. There is the growing backlash over ICBC. Every mm-hmm. day, some news organizations got a story of somebody who's having to pay th- two or three or four times as much for their auto insurance because their kid is driving the car or some unexplained reason on their record. The government has already said we may have to revisit some of that as well. It's worth noting, too, uh, you, you make a great point, and that problem is going to continue because I think if the, if the NDP had their, their perfect world, everyone's premiums would have, uh, would have changed on September 1st, and it would have been this big story, a big wave, and people would have been angry, but then it would have receded as people got used to it. The problem is, is people are uh, getting their renewals every month. Uh, from September on. I'm not till February. So there are, you're seeing stories of people whose rates have suddenly skyrocketed. Those stories are going to continue, uh, indefinitely for the next year as more and more people, uh, meet their, uh, renewal month. The I- irony for ICBC is that they have argued that the way that the rates have been redesigned is actually revenue neutral. The savings that will keep ICBC from being the dumpster fire came on capping the minor injury claims for pain and suffering and limiting the amount of medical reports you can have in cases and things like that. So I think, you know, the government slid in the rate redesign at the same time to get this all done. And people are, we've always predicted that people are going to be more upset about the rates than anything else because they think they're all good drivers. They don't understand why young people should be penalized when they're learning. And that backlash, uh, I think will persist. You're right, McLean, for quite a long time. Here's a hype. This is just a political. Just throw this out there. It's a political idea, and, and tell me what you think about it. If the pressures on the provincial budget grow so much that the government does end up into deficit and the, the economy's slowing, is there any political value to the NDP to just go deep into deficit to say, you know what, these are tough economic times. Why don't we execute our childcare plan or some other plan? We're already in deficit. We're going to spend to help you during economic times. If they get to that point. Is there any more risk for the government to just start dumping in some of their programs and just continuing to deficit spend for a while? McLean, why don't you – do you have any thoughts on that crazy idea? I'm going to say no. Okay. All right. <laughs> the reason why is this. Um, I think the NDP are smart enough to know that uh, there's probably going to be some reversion to the mean in swing ridings. They're not going to sweep places like Burnaby and the Tri-Cities forever. Uh, and so they – I think there's a whole pile of moderate voters in this province who, who would not be in enthused to see um, just sort of a warm embrace of deficits. The other thing about that is if you're going to go all in on project spending, it has to be something that everyone will see. Uh, you mentioned uh, $10 a day childcare. That's great. Not everyone has a, has a, a, a child at that age. So, right. I mean, they might agree with it on principle, but if they're not actually seeing it, I think if they're going to make political hay out of, out of, you know, spending until the cows come home, it better be a cow that everyone sees in their backyard. Is there a cow? Is there such a magical cow, Vaughn, do you think? I think it would involve a a major change of messaging from the government. Uh, The New Democrats in the 90s, at the very end, conceded that they needed balanced budget legislation and tax cuts. 
And they did it, but they did it so late that it was too late to save them. Uh, A lot of the people in this government went through that government. They know how dangerous politically that was. And I don't think they would abandon all of the things they've been saying about prudence and caution and everything else. Easily, I do think that they will try very hard to contrast themselves with the liberals and suggest that the liberals are the hard austerity party that's going to cut programs. But I think they're going to continue to make every effort to keep the budget balanced or close to balancing rather than abandon all that. Yeah. And Carol James has proven herself to be a very cautious uh, finance minister so far. I mean, she's the one who's increased the contingencies and forecast allowances. She's built in a lot of wiggle room in her budgets to protect against things. So it seems hard to imagine her just throwing open the piggy bank. Uh, but okay. Well, my idea went nowhere then. That's why, that's why. <laughs> like a lot of your ideas. That's Robert. right. That's right. We'll just cut that part out of the podcast. It'll never happen. Uh, moving on. I guess it's no surprise given what we were just talking about that John Horgan, the premier of BC showed up at the union of BC municipality speech. Uh, for his uh, speech uh, during last week's uh, long convention with no goodies in the goodie bag. He did not announce, unlike some former premiers, you know, Gordon Campbell used to go to UBCM and dump avalanches of cash on people. Christy Clark, when she cared, um, did show up and, and do a George Massey bridge. And then later, I think figured that it was just a loss, uh, loss scenario to give the municipalities anything. So, but we kind of wondered with John Horgan, does he show up and do these big announcements? No. He did not. There was nothing in this very long, rambling, stand-up comedy uh, speech that at one point took a long uh, road down an anecdote about the premier going to Fort St. James, betting on a chicken named Cisco, which he had inside information was actually a duck, turned out to be a chicken, and he lost the chicken race, and then the chicken died, and then now, and he lost 25 cents. It was, as you put it in your column, Vaughn, Surely the longest duck anecdote in the history of this or any other UBCM. Um, but it was, it was typical. The premier speech, it just kind of meandered a bit and, uh, and I guess plays into his type as dad joke, uh, premier John Horgan. Um, A, Vaughn, did you see anything in the speech that interested you at all? And B, after the speech, the premier got asked a bunch of questions. Uh, one of which is a, is an interesting quote when he was, he was asked uh, about why can the government not also fund the rural dividend fund and the forest fire relief fund together? Why can't we have both? And his quote was um, you know, basically because we don't have the money. And he said, quote, I'm not at all concerned that people would prefer to have everything right now. When I was a kid, I always wanted everything right now, too. And I ended up turning out OK, even though I didn't get everything I wanted at the time I wanted it, which is a quote that has caused a little, uh, a few ripples. So both his speech and that quote, Vaughn, what jumped out at you there? So just before he spoke, the convention voted unanimously to get the provincial government to put back the money in the rural dividend fund. It's a $25 million fund created by the Liberals, maintained by the New Democrats to allow local communities to diversify their economy. These are little places, under 25,000 population, First Nations uh, communities, and they don't have a lot of other sources of money. Government took the entire $25 million and stuck it into this support package for forest workers who need the money. Okay, So the local community said, no, no, you've got to find the money somewhere else. We, we don't have other sources for this. He ignored them. He didn't give them the money. Not only that, he made this comment that you just quoted at the end that suggested they were a bunch of ungrateful children uh, who wanted too much under the Christmas tree and they were just going to have to wait for it. I think the message it gave 
to local communities was the wrong one. I think it's an example of Horgan's style of improvisation and joking, backfiring on him. And I think that quote will come back to haunt him. How bad was it, do you think, McLean? Well, consider the situation uh, right now in BC. Um, we've had a summer where, and a year actually, where the forestry industry is in something resembling colony collapse. I mean, it, it is a disaster, and that's not hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after a summer in which the NDP have not been seen to be doing very much visibly, Vaughn, you've written about a uh, seemingly overmatched and very quiet forest minister and Doug Donaldson. He was given an airlift of a new parliamentary secretary who made waves by saying the problem is too many mills. And so at this stage, uh, Horgan walked into UBCM with that mood. They had just announced a $69 million uh, rescue fund, which, as you say, came from money already allocated to many of these same communities. I mean, imagine that sting. You're you're facing an existential crisis uh, in some of these communities with the closures of these mills. And the money isn't even coming from a part of the province that is less affected by industry collapse. It It's... It's hard to imagine more of a wrong-footed approach to this. Well, that quote, I think, will haunt him uh, as the liberals continue their attack on forestry issues. And it didn't help Vaughn that in the speech, the premier took a shot at uh, Teal Jones, uh, one of the, the BC forestry companies that has closed uh, some of its operations, including in Surrey, and redirected or uh, obtained money within its operations to upgrade uh, facilities in Virginia. And the premier made an offhand comment slash joke about that in the speech. Did you pick up on kind of an undercurrent of, of uh, you know, blame or anger at the, at the companies themselves for this forestry problem? Yeah, I mean, very mixed messages from the premier on this. He says he wants BC companies to be profitable, wants some creating jobs, wants some reinvesting in value-added production, and he's gone and told them how much he wants this. And then he takes a shot at companies for investing elsewhere. Well, Teal Jones is a BC company based in Surrey. It's been around since the end of the Second World War. Um, And look, they have taken a huge risk and bought some mills in the United States that were very marginal. And they've invested in them, not with their profits from BC, but because they're a company that's determined to expand and be productive. They're investing $40 million Canadian in Virginia in two mills because they can make money there. (laughs) They've shut down operations in British Columbia because they can't make money here. And the premier can interpret it any way he wants. He says it's hard to hear that message. Yes, it is. But you should listen. They're perfectly willing to continue their operations in British Columbia. They've got a 1,000 employees. Mills, at least one, is in an NDP riding. Uh, Give them a chance, but go and talk to them about what it would take for them to make money in British Columbia. I continue to wonder anyways why the government doesn't listen to that part of the forestry sector. I mean, it's and I wonder why they didn't listen to some of the workers as well, especially the steel workers who had lost their jobs, who certainly was coming to government with some type of ask. Um, we, we have speculated on the podcast in the past. It's because these are simply, um, with the exception of the Surrey closures by Teal Jones, mostly these mill closures are in interior northern ridings that the NDP do not control, have no hope of winning, uh, don't listen to the MLAs who are liberals who are from those ridings and are, are blind uh, and deaf to the issues in those communities and, and kind of don't want to hear it. McLean, does that, do you think that factors into, to, comments like the premier taking a run at uh, Teal Jones in his speech? 
You know, I I hope not. Although I I suspect you're right. Uh, it's it's a pretty cynical uh, worldview that, but uh, to suggest that these mills are are kind of the anti bombardiers. They're they're not right. in swing ridings. <laughs> they don't have to politically fight for. And so you know, it, the sixty nine million dollar uh, package was announced after the Teal Jones announcement that affected Surrey and Maple Ridge. So I mean, two two um, areas where the NDP not only have seats but are, are have vulnerable seats. And so it, it's hard not to be cynical. I don't want to accuse them of, of thinking explicitly like that, but it is hard not to see a pattern. It's a file I think will, that will feature prominently in the fall session of the legislature, I'm sure, in question period. So when we last left the legislature before spring session just ended, we had this extraordinary situation here where all of the liberal MLAs in the House, the opposition, the official opposition, stood up one by one and denounced Speaker Daryl Plekis by name, said they didn't have confidence in him as Speaker anymore, and they didn't want to be associated with any of his decisions. And then they marched out of the chamber en masse at one point, and basically the, the kind of House just sort of waited for the LG to show up and give some royal assent, and most of the Liberals weren't there, and they walked out. That was the last time the legislature was reconvened. It was, it was a very tense and bizarre, and uh, you don't see that kind of scene very often. We are coming back next week, and lo and behold, the Speaker, uh, the Sergeant-at-Arms, the Clerk, the Auditor General are all tied up in another development in this ongoing legislature spending scandal. There's, uh, you know, there's different ways into it, and I, we could talk about it till the, the cows come home, but we, we won't. But we'll just say there's, there's two kind of developments here. One is the Attorney uh, – sorry, the Auditor General – who did a, an audit uh, recently into spending at the legislature, the controls and policies of spending. She came out with a report that said, look, there aren't very good policies. There aren't, uh, there is not good oversight. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to tell if the expenditures by the clerk and sergeant at arms and speaker are appropriate or not. And this was a report that she put out. That report was criticized by Speaker Daryl Plekis publicly, who who was astounded in his own words that the Auditor General could not see with her own two eyes the level of fraud that he alleges existed at the legislature. Shortly after that, the Auditor General announces she is retiring, uh, effective at the end of the year. And there were a lot of linkages made about whether the Speaker's criticism contributed to that. Uh, the Speaker's Chief of Staff, Alan Mullen, came out and said no. There's no link there, but we weren't happy with a report, but there's still no link. So that's one area we can talk about. The other is the Sergeant-at-Arms, Gary Lentz, uh, who is under suspension right now uh, and uh, under investigation, has announced that he is retiring. This is uh, conceivably a few weeks before a police act investigation into his conduct is going to come out. That's an investigation started by the Speaker. He has been cleared of of uh, workplace wrongdoing by the former Supreme Court Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin in her report a few months ago, but he is also still under police investigation for some unknown allegations uh, of which we don't we don't totally know. So there are two developments there. They may or may not be linked. They may or may not be anything. We're still kind of fumbling around in the dark, McLean. How do you interpret? either or both or any of those things. I mean, you struggle to know even where to begin. And we didn't, you didn't even mention, um, Alan Mullen's, 
he objects to the term road trip. Uh, his, his, his business tour of provincial legislatures and state capitals, uh, which is something else we could talk about. It is hard to, to know where to begin with this bizarre situation. It's, uh, you, you started by mentioning the way the last session ended. Um, it's hard to know because there's literally no precedent what this next session is going to look like. We've never seen what, uh, a speaker's office and an official opposition in open warfare looks like before. And it's, I don't know that we want to see that. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the auditor general resigning in a, in a bit of a cloud to suggest there's no link whatsoever between the most public thing she had just done and the very public, uh, criticism directly and indirectly through proxies that was, uh, that was, uh, poured all over her. Um, I defies belief. It would be one hell of a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, as for Gary Lenz retiring, speaking of coincidences, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as for Gary Lenz retiring, uh, I don't know. It, it's uh, there are there is a police investigation and special prosecutors underway, so it's it's hard to know what we don't know. But um, the, you know, the McLaughlin report uh, and even indeed the Auditor General sort of seem to indicate that even where he had erred, he had done so with approval. So it's that's I think the area where we're most in the dark. It's almost a year. Uh, it's more than a year since the speaker took his allegations of whatever wrongdoing he found to the RCMP. Uh, we don't know the totality of those allegations, despite a year of reports and drama, many, many podcasts where we've tried to explain this. We still don't know the full scope of what the RCMP are investigating. It's probably misspending of some type. Who entirely knows? Um, Vaughn, how, how do you interpret both of those things and where we are at in this, like, never-ending scandal. Well, it would be good for the Assembly and all of the members in it, I think, if the police and the special prosecutors would wrap it up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I think we'd like to know, just get that out of the way. The sergeant-at-arms and the clerk have both left. They'll have to be replaced. Um, (coughs) They haven't made much progress yet on replacing either one of them. The speaker, look, the role of the speaker is to represent the interests of all the members. Plekis' one-sidedness on this is not flattering to Plekis. Uh, Yes, the liberals don't like him because he left the Liberal caucus and, in effect, by agreeing to become speaker, helped prop up the government. I actually think he made the right decision. I think the the NDP Green group deserved a chance to govern, and by the Speaker agreeing to take on that job, he created a cushion in the vote. Uh, Some of his conduct since then, uh, look, he clearly did, as an outsider, find some evidence of a significant abuse in spending and a culture of entitlement at the legislature, and he cracked down on it. That's the good thing you can say about it. But the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, the former Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, said many of the problems that Plekis identified were the kinds of things that a manager could have fixed by simply saying this is stopping. And Plekis, speaker, is a manager. He had an option other than turning himself into a private investigator on a crusade collecting trophies, he had an opportunity that would have stopped some of this earlier. So I think there's plenty of blame to go around. I would add to that list that, yes, you can question the motive of the liberals in attacking the speaker. I also question the motive of the Greens and the NDP in never seeing anything that he does worthy of criticism. As long as he provides them 
with their side and their balance of power, they don't seem to give a damn what he does. So, as I say, there's plenty of blame to go around. And that, in a nutshell, is why nothing ever gets fixed here. I mean, we get reports uh, from the Auditor General, from other people who say there's all these problems. There's a combination of of political axe grinding, political agendas going on, and also a persistent theme in all of this for years now has been an unwillingness by MLAs of all parties who are supposed to be overseeing this place to roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, have meetings, keep on top of what's happening here. I think I'm not sure whether it's laziness, and I think it's actually more political sensitivities over lots of the issues that MLAs have to grapple with when they run the legislature, things like their own salaries, their own expense accounts, their own IT and what kind of phones they get, their own constituency allowances. Those are no-win situations for them. The publicity on covering those issues blows back on them. No one wants to look like they're giving themselves more perks or a raise. So they choose not to have these meetings with any regularity. And the building drifts and it drifts. More and more power gets centralized in the staff who are here, who are accountable to no one. And then we end up in these in these kind of situations where we're in. I, I don't know, McLean, do you have any confidence that we are <laughs> in any way creating a culture here that's going to... Let, let's say we fix all these problems with a bunch of new policies, right? Let, we, you know, we plug the holes. Do we have any ability here at the legislature by the parties to work together, to keep on track of this, to to monitor things, to do, what do you make of the culture of just kind of running this building? Well, I, I think there's every opportunity to improve it. Uh, I think that I agree with Vaughn that the uh, the one good thing you can say about what Daryl uh, Plekis has done is he's kind of shone a spotlight on exactly what you just described, this kind of culture where the MLAs, they didn't really want to be doing all that kind of that grunt work. They, they do work really hard, whatever you think of politicians. And this had to be some of the most thankless committee work I- imaginable. Um, but what I, I also think that an improvement is going to take time to recover because what the speaker has also done is something approaching a, a massive and, and in, at times hysterical overcorrection of some of these things, which is why we have a report from him, which included, among other things, a line by line item uh, refutation of uh, a, a dinner that Gary Lenz's wife d- may or may not have eaten on one night. And he had his investigator contact the restaurant to see if they had any items that approximately matched the price point. I mean, if, if this is the kind of minutia that uh, th- that we're expected to be be looking at, then yeah, I think there's going to take a couple years of breathing room and uh, a, a cultural correction and improvement here will probably happen after the next election. It's brilliant modern politics in a way because people get so upset over the $16 glass of orange juice. They get so upset over little items of misspending that they can relate to their own personal lives and they don't blink an eye at a billion do- a 300 million dollar you know internal government cut to services to try and keep the budget balanced and i guess that's why the plecus reports so far have been very successful because they've itemized things like the cost of little jade bears that are gifts or the costs of cufflinks or the costs of of you know suits and bose headphones and things people can relate to and they go i want bose headphones why why can't i get bose headphones paid for by why are my tax dollars pay? and they and they get outraged and the outrage may be disproportionate to um you know the the uh hr reaction that is uh, that would be in a normal workplace for something like that I, I, maybe that's part of it but uh, I don't know, Vaughn. Do you think? Do you think we are 
in any way advancing in this file to understand or or make things better. Well, you and I have been writing about this for a long time. Uh, you know, I got wind back in 2011 that the then Auditor General, John Doyle, had blown the whistle on spending at the legislature, produced a report. They sat on it for almost a year until finally they got tired of answering questions from me and other reporters about where was the report. And Doyle threatened to release it whether they put it out or not, and they put it out. And the great line from John Doyle was that if the BC, the, the accounts were in such a mess at the BC legislature that if it were a public company, it would be delisted on the stock exchange. The Vancouver Sun ran on its front page a picture of every single MLA. This is in the summer of 2012, trying to shame the lot of them into cleaning up their act. Well, they started, but it's seven years later and there are still problems. So, yeah, I think the politicians have a lot to answer for on this one. Uh, the Auditor General pointed out last week the way they spend money at the legislature on travel and expenses and things. No deputy minister could get away with this. The ministries were cleaned up back in the 1970s after some scandals involving cabinet ministers. So there is no excuse for this going on. And and the finger pointing that goes on between the two parties or the three parties on this, there's no excuse for. And I have to say, because of the speaker's one-sidedness and the way he seems to be more interested in collecting trophies than in actually fixing things, hasn't helped it move forward. So I would like to be optimistic, but my guess is we are going to be talking about this and reporting on this for some time to come. Uh, McLean, you mentioned the uh, Speaker's Chief of Staff's road trip, yeah. which is another issue. There's two other issues that I know the Speaker feels are unfair for people to be talking about, but nonetheless are the same kind of issues we've been reporting on all over the place. One is his own office um, travel budget, which tripled according to the Auditor General's report and why that happened. And that sort of segued into his chief of staff, Alan Mullen, uh, who has a very high media profile and does lots of interviews, both his travel expenditures and this $13,000 trip that he took uh, to other Canadian parliaments and U.S. state capitals to investigate security. And there have been a lot of questions on why is that necessary? What was the cost? Who did he go with? Who, do, who got expensed? What were the expenses for? All sorts of questions like that. Do you see that as a big issue for the speaker and the chief of staff? Or is this just another kind of thread in a uh, in a sweater that's kind of coming apart at the seams? <laughs> Both, to be honest. I mean, it'll it'll be an issue because it is kind of a on its surface a, a ridiculous story. It, it's the more you delve into it, uh, you know, it turns out that some of the people that uh, Mr. Mullen went to go meet weren't there. Um, there's uh, he had a long digression on why driving was necessary. Uh, I believe at one point he said he told one reporter who asked him why they didn't fly. You know, you're welcome. Uh, the report will be more than well worth it. So th it's going to be very hard for them to avoid accusations of hypocrisy when they've gotten down into granular detail on others' expense claims. But, you know, it's we're supposed to just sort of blink and then, well, don't worry about it. There's a report coming on a $13,000, again, yes, road trip. Uh, 13000 you can buy a lot of cufflinks for $13,000. You can that's indeed. I mean, if that's also – that's what the, the wood splitter yes. and trailer cost, right? That was $13,000 as well. And if these <laughs> investigations are still ongoing, as they have said they are, then how important how, – how valuable is Mr. Mullen's time that it's – they would rather have him driving across the country rather than staying here and, and paying for uh, a few plane tickets than conducting investigations? The other thing I want to mention is uh, – this is going to sound like a, a slightly weak defense of what's happened here over the past 10, 15 years. In the last, I want to say, three, four years, there have been two incidents 
uh, that I think are related to the culture of there was both an NDP MLA and a BC Liberal MLA who were the victims of fraud uh, by their constituency assistants who were they did it in slightly different ways, but essentially they were skimming off the budget for the constituency office and aligning their own pockets. And people wondered, well, how could they possibly not notice? And I think the answer is that, you know, if the lights stay on and the bills keep getting paid, that's not there, – there's no reason they would notice. I think something similar has happened to the legislature here. That is not why. Pe- making sure that the uh, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed on the expense forms and all that, that is not why any of these people get into politics. That's They should be and I believe that from now on there will be more attention paid to this. But usually they get into it because they're, they're passionate about a political party uh, in particular. Um, there's an issue in particular they run on. No one gets into politics to pay more attention to the the day in day out uh, business of the legislature, and so they don't. And that's not an argument saying that they should never have. I, I'm just saying I I think I understand why it happened. And that's why we've always had traditionally the worst and most useless MLAs become speaker because it's a job that no one <laughs> no one really cared about, and it was kind of viewed as this great office and a little Scotch cabinet, and you know you just sit there and you would. It would be fun and you didn't have to do a lot of work and the building drifted and drifted. And you're right. I think a lot of MLAs up until now have sort of allowed the minutia of their office and their money to be handled by the legislature itself. And, you know, the public has cracked down really hard on MLAs on the way they spend money, the way politicians federally and provincially spend money. We want to see your receipts. We want to make sure it's spent properly. We don't want you sending your dry cleaning out and you paid how much for parking. And yet... Those same, uh, you know, demands were not placed on the staff at the legislature for whom, you know, the politicians were dumping all the work. And we're seeing the echo effect of, you know, the, the politicians, uh, you know, abusing money five, six, seven years ago now on the staff at the legislature abusing money because they weren't reformed at the same time as the politicians. So it's a bit of a, a multi-year mess of, of, uh, of all sides, I think. And I, I hope we're not, I hope that we are not talking about this a year from now again, but given the way that the police take their sweet time and the just level of complexity, whenever the RCMP get into political matters, I have no confidence that we're going to get a resolution to that in, in another year. But regardless of that, the house comes back, uh, just a couple of things before we run out of time here, uh, legislation for this fall, the big one seems to be UNDRIP, the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, this is something that's already been enshrined in all the ministries through mandate letters from Premier, Premier John Horgan. Now it's going to be legislation. We're not sure what it's going to look like, Vaughn, federally when uh, UNDRIP legislation was put uh, to the House of Commons in Ottawa. It wasn't very robust in terms of words. Not entirely sure what it means or or how it works, and I guess that's always been one of the problems with governments embracing UNDRIP is it's easy politically to embrace it, but putting it into action um, is difficult. Do you have any, any expectation on what it might look like this session? Well, the federal legislation, initially, uh, they said we can't make it work with Canadian can't make it work with the Canadian law and constitution. So the feds backed off. And then a private member's bill went in and they passed that. But the private member's bill was very simple. It simply said that Canada is committed to the United Nations Declaration. There's 42, 43 principles in it. And we're going to incorporate those principles into our law and into our regulations over a period of time. 
And we'll report back to Parliament every year on how much progress we've made. And they gave themselves 20 years to do it. Well, if it's simple like that, it's simple legislation. I expect it would pass the House. If they start trying to rewrite British Columbia's revised statutes, which are massive, and all of the regulations as well – in a single bill, then that is going to be very, very ambitious. My guess is what we get will be more like what they did in Ottawa. The Ottawa legislation was ready to go. It passed Parliament, but it died in the Senate when they dissolved Parliament for the election. So if they want to do it federally, they'll have to go back and start again after the election. McLean, do you think that's the big issue this session? Is there anything else on your radar uh, other than undrip, teen vaping, uh, anything uh, that you think will be a busy session? I, I think it will be a busy session, but I mean, it's only, is it four or five weeks? I think undrip will be the big story. And I, I agree with Vaughn. It, it's going to be a question of how granular they want to get. These are, these are sticky, challenging issues. I think the NDP got a, a little taste of it over the summer with the, um, the caribou consultation. And, uh, if you, it's, if you bring, you know, First Nations on the ground floor and then later tell the municipalities how it's going to go, they get upset they're not being consulted. Um, we're seeing constant arguments to this day with uh, Trans Mountain and Coastal Gas Link about what the definition of adequate consultation means. Um, so I I mean, I don't envy the NDP in, in, in many respects in trying to navigate exactly what adopting UNDRIP means on a day-to-day basis. And they have no one outside of Ottawa, which didn't get the job done, as Vaughn mentions. They have no one to to emulate on how, on how to pull this off. Our First Nations resource development issues are amongst the most contentious in the country, and BC's kind of venturing into uncharted waters and how to balance that all out and what it's going to look like. So I sympathize with the new Democrat government in a sense because it's not going to be an easy thing to do, and it hasn't been easy in their first two years, and the legislation is not going to is not probably not going to clear it up because no one entirely knows exactly how to do it. So uh, we will watch for that. Thank you so much for listening this week. Uh, Before we go, McLean, just tell people where they can follow you uh, on social media and a bit more about the Orca again and how they stay in touch. Oh, well, thanks very much. Uh, I'm on Twitter at at McLean K. Uh, the Orca is uh, on Twitter as uh, at the Orca BC and uh, the Orca.ca is our website. I'm sure I got it right that time. Uh, yeah, we've, uh, we, we're uh, still a relatively new voice here in BC politics, business and history, but um, one year in, I, I hope you'll come and give us a look. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for coming as well. And obviously you're in the sun every day, uh, with your, with your columns. Are you, are you still on the Twitter? Do you, do you want oh, people yeah, to follow I'm you on there? Still on Twitter. Yeah. Yes, yes. I yes. have the same feeling about it. Yeah. Yes, 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 <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, that's uh, why, uh, that's why we enjoy the feedback we get on Twitter. So it's, you know, it's so constructive and so sweet, the feedback you get on Twitter. I just keep going back to it just for that. Yeah, someone told me I had a stupid haircut on Twitter the other day. So that was the most. That's probably one of the nicest things anybody's ever said about oh, no, you on Twitter. Was, also, there were criticisms. That's right. It was, that's, yeah, exactly. And it was my mom on Twitter. But, <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. And uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, uh, and uh, read the Vancouver Sun and the province. We'll see you next week.